Come with me back in time to the year before I was even born, 1990. Madonna has just released her Vogue music video, directed by an up-and-comer named David Fincher. Hmm? Law & Order, first episodes ever, airing on TV. Nelson Mandela, freed from prison after over 27 years. That is where we are going today, back in time. We are going to get some amazing perspectives from one of Dr. Tyson's first ever patients, back when he was just starting out in the treatment of eating disorders. I'm so excited to take this journey with you. I can't wait. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ed on Ed, the show where we dive deep into the topic of eating disorders, looking below the surface and beyond the basic. I'm your host, Liz, and I'm ready to learn something new. I hope you are, too. Good afternoon, Dr. Tyson. Good afternoon, Liz. I usually introduce you saying over 35 years <laughs> expertise in the treatment of eating disorders, but today we're visiting back when you were just a few years in. Right. You were young. I'm sure your hair was long and luscious and a very different <laughs> color than it is now. <laughs> So I am really excited to hear our guests speak today. So I would say it's nice to meet you, Kate, but you met me when I was born. You've been around. I have, and I haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I want you to take yourself back to the first time you ever met Dr. Tyson. But let's get a little background before then. What was going on in your life at this time? So I was having just some hard time coping, I think, in, at work. And a, f I, a friend of mine gave me the name of the therapist, and I was going to see her. And she was concerned about my physical well-being. I didn't think I had any problems. So I went to Dr. Tyson, hoping he was just going to set her straight <laughs> and let her know that there really wasn't anything going on with me. I may be a little thin, but, you know, that was that. Was that. And so I went in expecting him to tell me I was perfectly fine and, you know, to praise me. So that wasn't exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd been seeing this therapist and she says, go to a doctor and you're writing it off. Oh, he'll tell me I'm fine. Well, what were the first impressions when you actually met him for the first time? Well, first of all, I wasn't expecting a doctor to come in and sit down and just start talking with me. I expected to spend a lot longer with the nurse. I think I was only with the nurse for a few minutes. And then um, Dr. Tyson came right in the room and he spent lots of time telling me about himself and trying to get to know me and really was just super, I never really had a doctor pay attention. I can remember knowing there was something wrong physically and like going to the emergency room and being blown off and just told, go eat some yogurt, you'll be all right. Um, you know, not knowing what was wrong, but just knowing something was wrong. Um, and so I wasn't, I was leery. Um, I hadn't had great experiences with medical providers prior to that. So I wasn't, I just wasn't, I was impressed. <laughs> um, but I still had something I was trying to convince him of, which was that I was fine. Interesting. <laughs> Dr. Tyson, I want you to share your perspective on first meeting Kate. She was shy. And I knew this immediately because she would talk in a voice about like this. And I had to move 
closer to her. I had a rolling stool, a doctor's stool, you know, and I would slide over towards her. And she also did not make much eye contact. And just before we started taping here today, she reminded me that I used to roll around the stool to try to get where her eyes were so that she would look at me, which was a challenge. I used to call it his damn stool. <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted her to know I was interested in her and hearing her story. And I wanted to make her comfortable so that she would. I know when people come in, they're going to be intimidated, scared, unsure, probably very ill, or at least possibly very ill, and yet not having a clue about it. And so first, you have to gain trust. So you've told us a few ways you were trying to make her feel comfortable and gain that trust. Are there any other strategies you were using? Yes. I told her, and Kate, like your input on this, I told her I would tell her everything I did before I did it. And she had total control. She could say, yay, nay. I know she didn't want that. I wouldn't do anything without her permission. I think the other big thing was is that we started out in chairs, like conversational chairs like this. Um, we didn't, it was a long time into the visit before he asked me to get on the exam table. Which is an intimidating place to be because people are used to being exposed and poked and prodded and revealed. And if you have something that's very difficult, that's hard to accept. And then when, we, when I did get on the exam table, the other thing that struck me is that it had, he had real linen. So it was real sheets and real pillowcases instead of paper, which was a big deal to me. It was like, you know, it felt like it was there for me and not something that was, I knew it was going to be laundered or, you know, and changed for the next patient, but it just didn't feel like you were throwing away something at the end of my visit. And somehow that just felt... Different. That's interesting. That was one of the reasons why I did it, but I have never heard someone actually say that that was something they that registered with them. Was there anything else, Kate, that uh, made you feel more comfortable in this first visit? He asked for permission before he touched me, um, which was huge, and I'd never had that before. And, I knew and, exactly- by, and by touch, like even putting on the blood pressure cuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and at the time I was, I wasn't at my lowest when I first saw Dr. Tyson um, because I, you know, had pumped up to ready to go prove to this doctor I didn't have <laughs> an eating disorder. So I'd been like loading a little bit before I went in to see him. But like sometimes a, brush, a blood pressure cuff would be a hard fit um, because my arms were pretty small and it was uncomfortable um, because it wrapped around far enough that it was like scratchy from the Velcro, you know, and so he would was really careful about that. He would warm up the stethoscope before he put it put it on, which was amazing because touch at that time for me felt like I was being injured um, just because I didn't have any padding. Um, it took me a long time to understand that's what it was, but it just, touch hurt. So. And you told me that at some point after that visit, I'm not sure when, and you said that it actually, the cold stethoscope was painful. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I've learned through the years being a patient that I don't like when the doctor says, sorry, my stethoscope is cold. You know, warm it up. 
And so, you know, rub it on your shirt or whatever and make it warm. So at least you're sending a message. Even that is important to me about how you feel. It sounds like just all of these little details are really the thing that show that this experience is going to be different than other experiences you've had in a doctor's office. And even just hearing it myself, it's so different than any experience I've had in a doctor's office. These little things really add up to create a trusting environment. Yes, I, I'm glad I do it because people do notice right off, whether they articulate it or it sinks in, my exam rooms are not sterile kind of places. Uh, like right now in our office, we have a sofa, we have comfortable chairs and all that. And the exam table's uh, a ways away, and they, I always spend time with them first talking. So let's get into what you learned. You've broken down these barriers. You've gotten her to feel a little more comfortable. What do you guys communicate in these first few sessions together? Do you remember? I remember that I spent a while trying to convince him I was fine. (laughs) I'm fine. Um, But I wasn't. And um, I kept going back because I deep down knew I wasn't okay. Um, My therapist knew I wasn't okay. Um, But I was getting mixed messages from family that I wasn't too thin. I wasn't, didn't have an eating disorder. Um, I think one of my first experiences with a nurse practitioner was that she asked me, do you have an eating disorder? And I was like, well, no. I mean, I was offended. I was like, no. The only after-school special I've ever seen is somebody who throws up after they eat, right? I I don't do Mm -hmm. that. I don't have an eating disorder. What are you talking about? I was highly offended. Um, And so I think I was on the defensive because I, that in my mind was somebody who has an eating disorder, somebody who's overeating and binging and purging, um, which wasn't what I was doing. And isn't it odd if the clinician asked you for your diagnosis? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, and she didn't ask me like, do you have an, just do you have an eating disorder? And if you do, it's okay. I was like, okay. Like, but I don't like, and that was all she, I mean, it didn't get brought up again. Usually when that happens, most people say, well, I eat, so I don't have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I, I know that the physical exam was a big part of it mm-hmm. because there are always signs. Do you remember any of those that uh, hit you that I made a point about? That my heart was beating at a different place than where it ought to be beating. Yeah. It was not, it was too far to the center, I think. That's right. Wow. She remembers. We've talked about that on previous episodes, how the heart can shift during malnutrition. As you lose muscle mass, it becomes more vertical. Mm -hmm. And then I think, I remember thinking, how do you know I'm too thin? And you showing me that you could put your fingers around my clavicle. And like, that would be my measure from like, I would find myself in my sense of my body. I think I still grab it, even though it's not <laughs> protruding anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and you, I remember you putting your fingers around my thigh like this and touching mm. it and saying, this is like, look at my arm compared to your leg. Um, just gave me some really 
measurable things that I wasn't able to see for myself. So it wasn't just um, an aesthetic opinion. It was that I showed you this is not a, not normal. And this is a sign you've lost muscle mass of both your pectorals and your deltoids and your trapezius and your neck muscles. Yeah, and you used to have me listen to my heart yeah, that's right. and my lungs. Um, and you showed me how to check my pulse. Um, but I don't think at the very beginning my pulse was raised that much, but I did have a pretty high resting heart rate. Right. Um, and it jumped up when you stood up, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. So Dr. Tyson is showing you physically on your own body all of these things. And you said you came in with sort of this denial mindset, this resistance. What's going through your head now that he's showing you these tangible proof that something's going on? You know, I think it took a while for me to still grasp it. Like he would show me that I could feel my collarbone, that I could reach around my my ankle, but it wasn't what I was seeing when I looked in the mirror and wasn't the feedback I was getting in other settings. So it was really confusing. Um, And I think we had to work a long time for me to realize I was getting an accurate opinion from him versus what I was getting outside um, I, I grew up in a family with people with eating disorders, and so it was a very competitive. Um, so my mom, who struggled with food, um, didn't see me, in her words, as someone who was too thin, because I think I was competition in some respects. Um, so it took a long time. I had to work with Dr. Tyson to really know which opinions I needed to trust. And that, again, is a reason why trust is so important. They're going to get other messages from who knows where, from the internet, from friends, family, the checkout stand at HEB, who knows what. And so she has to trust that what I'm doing is real and telling her and that I don't have some other agenda. And I think that's why those physical, like touch this, look at this, were based in so much reality compared to the other things that I was hearing is that I think that's what I started to trust is that his words were matching what he was showing me on my body that I couldn't see for myself. Do you remember your hands being cold and blue? Mm-hmm. They would tur- yeah, they were red and then they would be blue. Um, and I remember that when we started working with the nutritionist, you asked her, why are her hands always red? And she had a dictionary of the colors of mm-hmm. eating disorders or something like that, or colors of malnutrition. And she was like, yeah. So it was definitely showed me the colors. I, my body temperature was lower than normal, which I didn't think was a big deal, you know, but I know that I was several degrees lower than normal all the time. Um, so I stayed cold. Um, I used to try to stay in a hot bath to stay warm. And I used to keep my house really, really warm, and I couldn't figure out why my Christmas tree and my dog were like, my Christmas tree was dying, my dog was shedding, it was the middle of December, and I had my house at 85 degrees and I couldn't get warm. And it was like, what is wrong with everybody else? (laughs) This cannot be me. I remember that now, uh, that story about you realized your dog was losing hair because it was summer to your dog. 
I was yeah, oh, I wow. kept the house like a sauna, and it was it, yeah. I mean, the dog was shedding because the house was eighty-five or ninety degrees, and yeah, it was December. So, Doctor Tyson, I'm curious to hear things that stood out to you in these initial exams. You know, what about Kate really stays in your mind thirty years later as something? really interesting with her, something that taught you something. I remember how shy she was and how I had to work to get her trust. And I knew providing her with stuff she couldn't deny, for example, the blue hands, the heart pulse, and listening to her heart, she wouldn't know then, but when she got better, she could hear her heart sounds were better, and she could feel her heart pulse on her chest move back to where it's supposed to. And those long-term and also short-term kinds of things that made her more likely to accept what I'm saying, as hard as it is, if you'll pardon the saying, as hard as it was to swallow. I remember now something that I didn't know then. I didn't know what that color red and blue meant on her hands. Back then, I didn't know acrocyanosis. I did not know that. Now, I see it all the time. I know what it is. And so she's really the first patient who taught me that. So tell us, what is acrocyanosis? We've talked about it before, but when you're trying to save heat, your body will decrease blood flow to your skin because areas like your fingers and your toes, your feet, and your hands have large surface areas relative to, say, your arm. And you're going to lose more heat to the air there. So if the body restricts blood flow there and sends more of it to the core, it will save heat that it needs to keep running the equipment. And as a result, you know, we notice that our veins are blue. That's deoxygenated blood. So they don't get much blood flow there. And it turns a bluish, purplish, red color that we call acrocyanosis. Cyan meaning blue. And of course, the skin is cold, and she had cold hands. I used to use like only hot water. Like I just turned only the hot water on to fill the tub because I was so incredibly cold, and the water would get cold so quickly from my body temperature would bring the water temperature down. And was so hard to stay warm. And I now tell people to not do that because you can dilate that skin the skin vessels, drop your blood pressure, pass out in the tub or in the shower. And I've had in, oh, I've had, oh, I don't know how many patients pass out, hit their heads, have concussions. One shattered her elbow. Another one, when she stepped out of the shower, fell and hit the bridge right under her nose on the edge of the tub. Had a neck and facial injuries, dental injuries as a result. So I always tell people, if you have to have it warm, have a chair in there. And if you feel any lightheadedness, don't fight it. Sit and preferably sit down in the corner and then lay on your side. So this is something where you now have this future perspective. Yes. She's the first person you're realizing this blue color means something. I need to start paying attention to that. And now you're always paying attention to it. But also, she's giving you this, I like to take warm baths. Now you would have told her something about it. But at the time, you hadn't put two and two together that if her body's cutting off circulation to her hands and her feet to protect itself, 
if those things do start getting blood flow, it's no longer protecting itself and you're, you're going to pass out. Yeah. I, it's interesting because remember, I had a fellowship in adolescent medicine where we had an eating disorder clinic. It was my job to assess anybody. And that was stuff I didn't learn. So I'm learning OJT, you know, on-job training here. And Kate helped me. That's one of the things she, I remember to this day calling the dietician. Do you have any idea what this is? Why do they get this? I've seen it before. I have no idea what it is. And now I'm going, oh, wow. So you're such a young little doctor, <laughs> just <laughs> figuring it all out. Yeah. It's such a different perspective than what we're used to hearing on the podcast of you having so much experience in this hyper-focused thing. This is you figuring it all out. It's, it's really interesting, too, this story of Kate, you as well, figuring things out about yourself that you didn't understand, kind of like you're both learning at the same time. There's something really beautiful about that. I tell people I train, that if you have a, quote, difficult patient, that maybe what you should do is appreciate it because they have a lot to teach you. If it's difficult, it's because there's stuff you don't know, don't understand. And this is where you can really learn. It's funny because I dug through storage and found my old medical records and I looked at them and I was like, man, I, I told my partner, I was like, I was a pain in the butt. How did he put up with me? <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, because I, I presented with my arm hurts, my throat hurts, my, it was everything else besides what was really going on. Um, and I didn't want to gain weight. I didn't want to get on the scale. Um, I couldn't understand why the weight was so important, you know, <laughs> and I, and it was never like I could always not get on the scale. But to me, that was my grade mark. It was like I could not imagine myself ever getting over 100 pounds. And, you know, I'm 5'5", five five, and so I needed to be over 100 pounds. And I, I could not, I thought I would die before I reached 100 pounds because yeah. it just felt intolerable. You know, she said, I did not, she didn't quite say it that way, but I gave her permission to not uh, get on the scale if she doesn't want to. I looked at how many patient refused, patient refused, patient refused, which was really empowering. You know, it was, sometimes I just did it because I knew I could, you know, mm -hmm. and I also knew you would always tell me, I don't care what the number is, and you wouldn't look at it when you came in the room. <laughs> That's right. It, it, you, the nurse did it and it wasn't in the notes and you didn't even you never looked at it um, you would just come in and say I don't need to look at that I can look at you and know how you're doing and that really meant meant a lot and it was true <laughs> I'm curious Kate if part of why that meant so much is because you were putting you said a grade mark on a number and the fact that he was ignoring that number and focusing on other things, is that part of what the the key was to feeling like he was different, like this approach was different? Yes. Yeah, and it, and I couldn't get his attention with my the number on the scale, mm -hmm. um, which I know I tried to do sometimes was, you know, I'll show you I'm having a hard time because I'm going to come in with a lower weight because that's how I'm going to tell you because I can't figure out the words to tell you that something's not going right. Um, you know, and 
I mean, Dr. Tyson, I've known Dr. Tyson for a really long time. It's been like a lifetime. He's always, always been my lifeline. Always. Mm. Always there. Always there at pivotal moments. Always there at big moments. Um, you know, still the person I reach out to when I need support. So. Really a... I mean, it's longer than my lifetime, right? I wasn't born yet. So it really is for me. It would be a full lifetime of knowing each other and leaning on each other. There's you know, one other thing she taught me. What I realized when she was talking about, about weight. <clears throat> so I had to come up with a way to argue this point of why weight's not that important. And I, what I tell them now is, if it's about weight, then what you ought to do is sign up with Elon Musk and uh, SpaceX and become an astronaut. Because suddenly, you know, you go up in space, you weigh nothing. Eating disorder cured, right? And of course, everybody goes, well, no. Okay, so then it's not about weight. And really, I don't care except changes in weight can tell me something. And I'm curious about that. But the actual number doesn't mean much to me. It's measure of gravitational force. It's not a measure of who you are or what you're struggling with. And I remember in a previous case as well, a patient had a was improving, quote unquote, gaining weight, but you were noticing things like their blood pressure isn't where it should be, their heart rate isn't where it should be, and their glucose were, is dropping. Their right? glucose, mm -hmm. like you needing to get the whole picture because just focusing on that would be just as problematic for a doctor to do. You're going to miss so much. You know, this is, this is really interesting. We're talking about this today because tomorrow I'm giving a talk to PA students at uh, one of the, in Galveston at the UT medical branch there. And these are all things I'm going to be talking about with them, trying to bring them up to the modern era of, e of diagnosis of eating and management of eating disorders and you were at the cusp I remember speaking with you with medical students and residents um, you know and being willing to let them ask their questions and and it and have the resident I was hospitalized in a medical hospital and having the residents come visit me and this you know young charming, resident who thought he was going to cure me of my eating disorder because he took me to the cafeteria and was going to buy me an ice cream. <laughs> and he brought him back to my room. He walked me down to the cafeteria and was like, you can have anything you want out of this case. And I was like, okay, I don't want anything. So um, <laughs> he had an ice cream and it could not convince me. He was pretty sure he was just charming enough that he was going to cure me. But um yeah, I remember having Dr. Tyson having a conversation with him later about, um, you know, an important step that he missed. And that was asking if it was OK to come in and do my because he was doing rounds that day, come in and do the medical visit and can be consuming uh, food at my bedside. And so, yeah, but he was going to charm me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work. Uh, yeah, got easily charmed. <laughs> I, so what we just to be clear what happens on those remember I said here's a chance if you want and we will have a, the ability for them to ask a question any question they want and you have the ability to say anything nothing or whatever you feel like 
and those were the ground rules, and you felt safe with that and knew that I would enforce it and support it. And afterwards, how did you feel when you, for the first time, not only talked about an eating disorder, but you were teaching physicians about it? It was the first time I felt like I had something important to say. Um, people were listening. People wanted to know what I thought and that I was sort of the expert in the room, which I didn't mm-hmm. realize so much at the time. I just did realize that people thought that what I had to say was important, that I had a story that they wanted to hear. And they did want to hear. They were very attentive. And then you graduated on to do larger, mm-hmm. like classes at Dr. Peterson's class, remember that, with 100, 150 students in an auditorium. Yeah. And it, I mean, the students who, it was amazingly quiet in those lecture halls, which you was could just. hear a pin drop when you They were could talking. hear me talk, which is yes. like, was a big deal. Um, it, yeah. And. Because she was unmiked, and it was the auditorium, and she had to speak, and she did which was big for me. But also, I think we, I, I learned a lot about um, what progress l- can look like if you just take a snapshot. Um, I don't know if you've heard the story about you know, what progress looks like when you're hammering a nail, but... Uh, <laughs> do you remember this story, how it, how it came to you that day? How you used how I, I used don't. it. Tell me. I mean, okay, I, let's let's pause there. I want to okay. break down this hammer story. Right. I want to hear this this metaphor. I love metaphors. So, Kate came in one day, and she was not doing as well. Her the weight had dropped. Her intake had dropped. She was more flat and depressed. Now she had been in therapy, and she was very faithful about therapy. She would go and would not stop. She kept coming in for appointments. All of that was good. So I knew she was working. And so then I thought, ah, let me try this. And I said, Kate, what are you getting ready to do? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, you're getting ready to do something that before you never even thought about doing. Because now your your mind can accept that you're at a point for something else. And she didn't get it. And I said, okay, I want you to sit there. I'm going to pause you there before yeah. you go on with the story. Is this ringing bells for you, Kate? Are you now remembering this conversation? Do you remember this line? What came into your mind when he said, what are you getting ready to do? Well, he told me, show me what you're going to. I want you to hammer this nail. Show me what you would do. And I raised my hand and brought my arm back and said, stop right there. I was like, he's like, that's where you are right now. You're getting ready to hammer that nail. So can you explain this visual to us, podcast listeners? So I have them sit there and pretend they've got a nail in one hand, like on their thigh, and that it's a big nail and it's a big piece of wood. You have to hammer it in with one blow. I'm going to tell you to start. Start. I'm going to tell you to stop. I want you to freeze in position. So she started and cocked back, and I said, freeze. I said, where's your arm going? And she said, back here. I said, why are you going away from the nail? The nail is what you're trying to hang, hammer in. She goes, well, if I didn't do this, I wouldn't have the strength to hit it in. And I looked at her and she went, oh, that if 
all you did was focus on going backwards, you missed the whole point. And do you remember what it was, was the big deal? You were thinking of changing your name. Oh, yes. Interesting. Yeah. See, I remember that. That I use that hammer stuff all the time still. I bought him a hammer when he first moved away for a while and, yeah, for his bookshelf. Yep. 1994, Kate is on the <laughs> end of the like, hammer. Yeah, Dr. Tyson's oh, hammer. I should have brought it today. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> I still have that I hammer. I can both see it. Um, but, yeah. So, so talk to us about this name thing that you were swinging that hammer back for. So I was named after my father, who was, I had a very sort of dysfunctional family. In my sort of. <laughs> I had a dysfunctional family. And my father was my primary abuser. And I was named for him. Um, and I had a name that was very close to his and very close to my uh, two siblings, my mother thought it was clever to name us all really close names. And so I felt like one of the ways that I could heal and get away from his legacy was to find my own name. And so I looked back in my ancestry and found the f first relative, female relative who was not part of the dysfunction or the abuse and took her name. Um, I went to court. I was paralegal, so I figured it out. I went to court, changed my name, and it was like becoming me, I think. And what else did you do? Do you remember? You were going to move out. Oh, yes. I, yeah, I, I moved out of my mother's um, home. So I, I was a young adult, but I had moved back home. My father died when I was 18. And I had younger siblings, one who was significantly younger, so my mom had asked me to come back home to try to help. Um, my sister is ten, nine years younger than I am, and so she was, you know, a 10-year-old. Uh, my mom was dealing with my father's death, and she asked me to move back home, and I felt like I had to stay. I had to be there to take care. I had always sort of parented my younger sister anyway, and then with my father's passing, my mother wasn't coping, and so... I moved home and then I felt stuck. I felt like I, she couldn't live without me. I couldn't live without her, even though things were miserable. The guilt was the big deal that you had to overcome of taking care of you, that your needs were that important. And that, I think, was the biggest thing you were struggling with in this decision to not only move out, but to separate by changing your name. It was a metaphoric major event and it really signaled a new stage in your life it was a new stage I mean I think I became who I am today at that the moment that we, we made that choice things definitely change about who I was who I identified with I had found family versus my birth family so um, you know Dr. Tyson's who walked me down the aisle when I got married um you know, I didn't have other family that were present. I was there. Liz was there. <laughs> she she was there to, yeah. So I had made family. Um, and that's why I say, I mean, Dr. Tyson has just been part of all of the big parts of my life, good and bad and everything in between. Mm -hmm. um, and was, I, I realize now 
more I think I think I always knew it but I realize even more now how much of a sacrifice he made that Mary made that the girls made to be able to, for him to be so available to the rest of us who needed him so desperately um, because he was always always there I mean he, he may not be able to take the call right now but it wasn't going to be long before I heard back um, or I could just call and check in and leave a message just so that he knew I was still breathing and I knew he was still somewhere on the other end of the line um, yeah that's very true I mean even with us to his family you know if it's four in the morning and I call him two times in a row I'll get a response <laughs> um <clears throat> That is something incredibly admirable. But I want to sit in this moment for a little bit longer, Kate. I want you said changing your name to Kate really helped you become the person you now see yourself as. When you introduced yourself to somebody new using your new name, what did what was the person you felt like you were introducing yourself as? Someone who lived uh, lives in this body not someone who was trying to kill the body that they lived in. Um, I felt like I could take up space. I felt like when I breathed, I breathed into my own body and that when I moved my muscles, I moved my own body and not something that was, I used to see it as a monster. I saw my body and my eating disorder as a monster and something I wanted no part of. And then I started feeling like, I remember feeling my collarbone for the first time and, and like knowing and realizing how grounding it was that that was me, that I could find myself anytime I felt lost by just reaching back for my collarbone. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, working with you all those years and hearing you articulate that, I know you had told me that before. And and at the time when I showed that to you, I had no idea that might have that impact on you. I thought it was some information for you to use as some evidence. But when you talk about grounding you and this is you, you are somebody, you are a person who has her own body and she has her own life and can live it. And I mean, there is something very just metaphorical in general about the fact that we are embodied people. Mm -hmm. I was just talking actually this morning to producer Matthew about how frustrating it is that I have to pee because it's such a hassle. He's like, well, you have a body, so you have to pee. Same thing with eating, right? It's, it's an investment in your physical form and it's something that's every day. And I, I love this idea of this name change matching up with this reclamation of I have a body that is me and I'm not trying to fight it anymore. I'm going to live in it. That's the sense of self, the physical self, the emotional and spiritual mental self and that you see this coalesce together. Sometimes I talk about when people come in you know those well, toys or whatever where they have a wooden ball and it's all these pieces together 
and when they're together, it's a solid wooden ball. And I see it's kind of like you've got all these pieces here, but they're out floating out here, but they're not coming together. And then when you start seeing it come together and there's this entity like she's describing, that is a, such a rewarding thing to see that the effort has got, gotten to that point. There's also one other thing I want to probe about with the name change. You said you looked back through your family line to find a woman who's still part of your family, but wasn't ever somebody who was abusing you and taking on her name. That's an interesting choice. Do you know why you didn't just pick a random name completely unassociated with your family? I felt like I needed to have some kind of roots. I needed to be grounded in something. Um, I I mean, I looked outside for lots of support. I think I, I look back at myself as a young adult, even as a teenager, and think, you know, you did a pretty good job considering what you were doing. I mean, because before I was living at home as a young adult at the time we were just discussing, I left home when I was 15 years old. Right. Um, not by choice. I was asked to leave. Um, I didn't have a place to live for a long time, and I figured things out. I survived. I found places to stay. I stayed in people. I had a friend whose boyfriend was a, on the radio overnight, and I would go to the radio station and hang out with him, so I had a place to be at night. I would sleep in people's cars on their, you know, their couch. Um, and so I look back and think, man, I, you know, I did this. So I want to be connected to who, where I came from, even though I had a strong support system that I had created for myself. So, yeah, I just think I needed somehow to be grounded back into my roots, even though I had learned how to create support and family around me. When I hear you talk like that, describe what all you did to survive and thrive, it reminds me when I tell people about this, you see this frail person in front of you, you want to think that these are just these waves that are going to shatter the next wind when that knocks them over and into multiple pieces. But they are made of titanium. And for her to have done all of that, and I've seen this happen so many times, in spite of the physical impairments that they have, and even the mental impairments from the lack of glucose and so on, they still are resourceful and determined. And people need to remember this, that you've got to look a little deeper than their weight. Please, Lord, let people see that, that who is this person in front of you? And I learned more and more as I went along and finding out about Kate. And what a remarkable person she was. You were triggered something completely different. Talking about the family, uh, <laughs> the very first time I saw you, I was asking a survey of what you'd been eating and what you'd been drinking. Remember? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she was drinking Pepsi. Now, I said, diet Pepsi. And she said, no, Pepsi, real Pepsi. I went, interesting. And Why? she would go Let's pause there. Let's pause there. Why is that interesting? I mean, I know you like Coke, but some people like <laughs> Pepsi. <laughs> right. <laughs> because most stay away because it has calories in it, and maybe even sugar in it. The thought. And yet, that was what she preferred to drink. And at times, that was the only thing she drank. Not water, not anything else, just Pepsi. 
I asked her about that. And for a while, it she didn't really know, and then she was able to tell me. It was because it was what my mom drank, and it was what we couldn't drink as kids. And she would tell me, when you have a job and you have your own house, and when you're an adult, you can drink what you want, and you can have all the Pepsi you want. Um, so as soon as I could do all of those things, that's what I did. It was sort of a thumb in the eye of your parents. There was another rules, as I recall, and this is all from memory, not anything mm-hmm. I've seen by looking at the notes, because it struck me then that there was a method to how your family would have meals, who could eat first and all that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so I, it was me and my brother who were two years apart, and then my sister who was much younger, so for you know a big chunk of my childhood at home, because that ended at 15, it was just me and my brother. Um, my brother and my father were allowed to eat and make their plates first. I had to make sure that they had plenty to eat, so if they wanted seconds, that they would be able to serve themselves before I'd be allowed to eat. Um, There were also different rules about what went on your plate. So my mom was always on a diet. Um, She put me on my first diet, I think, when I was eight. Um, And only... The boys did not eat vegetables. They ate meat, potatoes, and the closest thing to a vegetable was corn. <laughs> and there was no expectation that they were ever going to... Men do not like vegetables. They do not eat green food. That's reserved for those of us who are on a diet. And so I, my mother served meat and potatoes and corn at every meal that I can remember growing up. And I would either have a salad or a potato... I mean, tomato and... Uh, bell pepper and cucumber like sliced up yes can't have pepsi you can only have water and you can only have it from the bathroom and somehow i it just felt like the bathroom water wasn't the same as the kitchen water so i think i really had an affinity to drinking water i was like i don't want no i don't want it if it has to come out of the restroom like i i don't know which is not really logical but a kid brain thought it made sense Mm -hmm. um and so I, yeah, I would sit at the table and face my meal or my drink for a long time sometimes because I just couldn't eat what I was offered because um, it would wait for me for my next meal. And and then there were these other weird rules about eating food away from home that used to be really hard at school because you couldn't go out to the playground if you didn't eat your lunch. And my mom would send us to buy a lunch but there would be she they was a hundred years ago they published it in the newspaper every week what you're going to be having for lunch all week Um, and so I would have a list of things that I could and could not eat off of my lunch plate Um, for example they would serve poor poor boy sandwiches which were like bologna and cheese um, along with spaghetti I wasn't allowed to eat the bologna or cheese away from home, so I would just eat the spaghetti portion of my lunch, but then I would have to stay in from recess because I wasn't eating my lunch, and I didn't drink milk, So because I wasn't drinking my milk, because I wasn't eating my sandwich portion, although my mom would send me with, just eat the spaghetti and here's some Fritos, like have those if you're still hungry, or can't have, you can't eat the fish sandwich. Fish sandwich was also served with spaghetti for some odd reason. So I, like I could eat the spaghetti, but like no fish sandwich because we don't eat fish away from home. Can't have mayonnaise away from home. Can't have cottage cheese away from home. 
pretty much any milk product was like off limits. And so it was really confusing because I was doing what I was told and then being punished at school Mm. because I wasn't finishing my tray. And so that message was super confusing. And nobody, nobody ever got it at school. No. I mean, I had a teacher, I think, who knew something was wrong, but it was at a time when people didn't intervene like they do now. Mm-hmm. And I think that they recognized something was wrong the day I showed up with my newborn sister <laughs> at school because I couldn't get my mom to get up and take care of her that day. So I didn't know what else to do. I had to go to school, took my newborn sister with me to school. <laughs> and they figured something must be wrong. I, I can imagine so. You know, I mean, and they, they called and said, you know, you need to come get your child and my mom's like what is she sick and she's like uh, no you need to come get your baby from school um wow. yeah so. no wonder you had trouble figuring out what to eat hmm. so i really appreciate you sharing all of this background and if dr tyson was just a therapist maybe that would be kind of the end-all be-all of the discussion. But Dr. Tyson, you have to start thinking of a treatment plan. How do you marry giving a treatment plan with also having these more therapist-like discussions? Like, how do you come up with what she should be doing? Well, you know, she's a whole person. She's got a physical self, an emotional self, mental self, spiritual self. And so I combine those and say, here's... I understand what's going on. Tell me what's going on. Now, here's what you need to do to eat. Here's what you have to do physically. Here's why you need that. Here's what I'm seeing in your body that tells me you're in trouble, and here's how you can do it and get you the sport center to a dietitian who at that time was the only one around I knew in Austin who would deal with eating disorders. And so that, that was helpful. He would send me home with a prescription for food. Um, <laughs> I would get an RX for food. And then, I mean, he would be like, this is the medicine. Just It's medicine. It's not food. It's not rules. It's not, I don't care what it is that you're, I mean, he cared, but it's like eat. But it's a medicine. Medicine is for, this is medicine for your heart. And I think that was the message I heard loud and clear is that my heart was in danger. I can remember you telling me, you know, I when you walk out of here, I can't. I can't tell you you're not going to have a heart attack. I can't tell you that the next time you step on up on a step stool that that's going to be the last step you take. Your heart is in danger, and your heart, the medicine your heart needs is food. Um, and really just making it very clear that it really wasn't about the food, it wasn't about weight, it was about medicine for my heart. Mm. I like that because, you know, there is a world where you see a doctor and they just give you a list of rules that feels a lot like what your mom used to give you, right? And that's not going to (laughs) work. That's just going to make things worse. I I love the idea of the prescription. And giving a reason, too. It's not just this arbitrary because I said so, because I'm an authority figure. It's a explanation. Write it down on a sheet and hand it to you. And in fact, I would say, okay, well, what do you want me to eat? And he would say, you need to figure out what your body needs. I need you to eat, but you need to figure out what you need to eat. I'm not going to set the rules. I'm not going to set, you know, and and the nutritionist gave me guidelines, but she wouldn't set my meals either because it was like, okay, well, somebody else just does it. Then I can like, I can perform to this. Um, 
because I'm good at doing what people want me to do, mm-hmm. sort of. <laughs> but also giving you the wiggle room for you to make decisions on your own. Yeah. Now, talking about food, I remember you were in the hospital once. And it was a big time. It was the first time you had ever been in the hospital. I walked into the room to do rounds. And do you remember what we're talking, what I'm talking about? You want to talk about it? It's interesting she remembers. I, I mean, it was Is pivotal the, for the me. the first time I threw up? Yes. Mm-hmm. So and the first time? The, the first time I threw up because it was the first time that I ate pie. So my Ever. tray at the hospital, I had a tray of normal food. I picked out my meals at the hospital. You know, I, they gave me a menu to choose from, but I had to choose my own meals. I was brought up to believe that I didn't like anything sweet. I didn't like desserts, you know, so I wasn't allowed to have them at home. So I ate a piece of pie, coconut cream pie. Yes, I remember. Um, and it was like, I like pie. Like, and so <laughs> I was super excited and proud of myself. And then my mom had called the hospital because and asked me what are you doing what did you eat today and so i told her i was like i had a piece of coconut cream pie and i and she's like oh you pick yeah and i was like i was devastated because i was like here i was thinking i had discovered something new i was like Mm -hmm. you know and i was was feeling good about it i was like you know something and it was a time when I did eat most of what was on my plate that day, but I also was a huge difference to be able to like decide to eat dessert first because I actually think I ate it first that mm-hmm. day instead of eating like whatever mm-hmm. else came with the meal. Um, but yeah, I ended up purging it. And But that was a big moment for me to know how much I needed to separate myself and I needed to make decisions and choices for myself. And after that, your mom was not to call you. We kept her away from the hospital. Said she can't visit her or call her. Mm-hmm. And when I came to see you, what you told me was you threw up for the first time. And when I asked you why, you couldn't at first tell me why. I said, well, take me back. What happened? Here's the deal. And then it clicked to you that, oh, connected the purging to what had traumatized her by what her mom had said. And it was a big day, a dessert yeah. for somebody who had never day. had it. It was the first time I looked in the mirror and saw me for the first time, too. The hospital only had, like, a little mirror over the sink, so I could only see from, like, here up. And I remember you saying, can you just find one spot, one spot on your face, what you see in the mirror here, that you can say, this is okay. And I remember feeling like, all right, I'm digging how my cheek feels. It's kind of smooth, you know, like mm-hmm. it was just like, okay, I can I can do that. And it was like little by little. I think we just worked a long time for me to accept more and more of what my body did for me, but mostly that it was a muscle, you know, that it was. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time you told me that you realized how thin you were. Do you remember? You were walking along the street and the reflection in the window, and you would thought, oh my gosh, that person is so ill. And then? Yeah, it was me. It was you, yeah, <laughs> and, that's right. And I think that, and along with it, I think I was at work and people were commenting about my weight. And so I started wearing two pairs of jeans thinking that was gonna like 
get everybody off my back. It's mm-hmm. like if I just double up my jeans, surely that'll be enough for people to like just not have a. And didn't happen. Wow. So this retrospective view, I tell people you have so much to learn from the people you're working with who have eating disorders. They can teach you a lot. I'm still learning. And I love the challenges when people come in. The more complicated, it's like, okay, I got to figure this out. And at the time, there was not much around to teach me what to do. The eating disorder professional organizations hadn't really gotten going back then. And it was kind of you're in the Wild West figuring it out. And um, then you have someone like Kate come along and trust the training I had gotten because I had started my own therapy and that had really helped me with dealing with her and giving me more insight. And then other doctors in my life who had had a big influence on me who told me, you can figure this out. You're as smart as anybody else. You can figure this out. And then to see what happens when it all comes together. And now looking back where I was, how I've taken these stories and the lessons she taught me and how it's helped so many people down the line. You're a hero. <laughs> well. But... I mean, but the thing is, when he talks about it, he talks about working with you, right? Mm-hmm. He he talks about how you were a fundamental part of this. You're a fundamental part of him being able to keep doing what he's doing and getting better at it, too. Learning lessons from it. He'll never ask, why are your hands blue? Every time. <laughs> yeah. Let me look at that up somewhere. Where can yeah. I find that? I like taking hot baths. Oh, me too. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) But when I see her way back when, when she, first time she did the resonance uh, where they got to answer questions, I think, who's the brave one here? Who who is really um, showing herself to be so much more complex and strong and has come so far and think of where she'll wind up? The other thing I really have noticed this episode is how little I have to do my job because you guys talk like old friends because Mm. you are old friends. Yes. Right. You have this natural communication, this natural banter. You've been down these roads together and you can reminisce like old friends. It's it's a beautiful thing to have witnessed across the table today. Um, And it's it's moving. Whenever I see a patient who comes in for the first time, I'm thinking this could be a long relationship. Mm-hmm. And I settle in and said, I'm fine. I've got my seatbelt on. Let's see where it goes. And that this is an example of how it can be. It's a lifetime, mm-hmm. lifetime lifeline. Lifetime lifeline. That feels like an episode title feels like a really good episode title. I might have to steal that from you. I'll give you credit. <laughs> Kate, I want to hear your big reminiscing moment. Dr. Tyson just kind of got to reflect on his future career. How have how has the experience of going through recovery affected your future self? 
What big takeaways do you have from it? I'm still here, and I think that may, I mean, <laughs> I think that I don't think anybody believed that that would be true. Um, I think I was in danger of losing my life a lot of different times, um, years and years and years ago, probably before Liz was born, um, in particular. And I think that is huge. And I 100% know it's because of my work that I did with Dr. Tyson. Um, there's been lots of people in my life who've been helpful and have come and gone, but he is the constant and the steady. He's always been my connection. Um, and I won't ever forget that. What have you learned about yourself from this experience? Well, you know how Dr. Trash was talking about people being thin and small? I never thought of myself as weak. I knew I was strong. And I knew I'm a scrappy, right? I mean, I could make it happen. What I didn't know is that I could stop fighting and just be hmm. for a minute. And I think that's the biggest thing I've learned is that I can just be. I just want to end by thanking you, Kate, for agreeing to be on this. It's always a bold, brave thing to share your story, and you do it so eloquently. And it's been wonderful to listen to. And I know that your story of being more than 30 years in the future from these really dark moments are going to be an inspiration for a person who can't see that future. To know that you got through it, and you can talk about it like this, and you've created your own family, and you've created your own life, you've created a self, is going to be something I know will reach other people. So thank you for sharing it on the podcast. Thank I'm you honored. for having me. <laughs> I knew you would do such a great job. That, uh, and you blow me away today. That I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm just amazed. Still. And, you know, growing up, you were always just referred to as a family friend, Kate, the family friend. And I see that there is that real compassionate foundation to the relationship you guys have. You do turn to each other for, you know, the medical advice and all of that, but there is just a friendship here as well. And I'm glad well, to. You know, it was, it. I probably knew her about three years or so maybe four or something like that and for the audience to know Mary, my wife and I decided you know Kate would be really good to babysit I mean we trusted her we knew who she was I knew her very well I knew she would be someone absolutely be wonderful and so <laughs> we, we used her and it was great who knew that we would be doing a podcast right? 30 years later? <laughs> wow. What a perspective. Thank you, listener, for taking the time to learn something new. Thank you, of course, to Dr. Tyson for his expertise and Kate for her expertise as well. If you would like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at edonedpodcast. And we're also on Facebook now. If you want to reach out, our email is edonedpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you're interested in sharing your perspective like Kate did today. Thank you as well to In Between Productions for producing this podcast. They're on Instagram at inbtwnprod.com.